0: just reading verse 28 for good for those who are called according to his purpose let's read that once more and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose let's go to our lord in prayer Our gracious, holy, and eternal Father, we are most grateful to you for ordering each of our steps here this evening. Mindful Father of many of our brethren who are not here tonight for various reasons, we do ask, Lord, your mercies upon them, especially those among our church family who are laid aside due to sickness. We just pray, Lord, that you'll have mercy, great mercy upon them and give them recovery and restoration. But Father, for us who are here, as we open up your holy word, as we seek to consider this very grand subject, this awe-inspiring doctrine of your holy word, your divine providence, Lord, we pray that... That in your mercy and kindness, this teaching tonight would visit us all in a way that will be so illuminating on the one hand, just giving us more and more layers of truth that help us to see and understand how absolutely sovereign you really are in our lives. But also that we will be greatly encouraged by this fact, this reality, this revelation of how you work and govern and direct our lives personally. Father, I pray that when we come to the point of application in tonight's study, may the Holy Spirit may the Holy Spirit by his power give us the ears to hear. Most effectually and the hearts thereby to receive the truth tonight. In Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray. Amen. On May 25th, 1861, corresponding from Richmond, Virginia, on the eve of the war between the states, General Robert E. Lee wrote to his wife, I have been trying, dearest Mary, ever since the receipt of your letter by Custis to write to you. I sympathize deeply in your feelings at leaving your dear home. I I have experienced them myself, and they are constantly revived. I fear we have not been grateful enough for the happiness there within our reach, and our Heavenly Father has found it necessary to deprive us of what He has given us, I acknowledge my ingratitude, my transgressions, and my unworthiness, and submit with resignation to what he thinks proper to inflict upon me. We must trust all then to him. On another occasion during the war, General Lee was recuperating from an injury he had received when news arrived from home that his second daughter, Annie, had become ill with typhoid fever. Not long after this news, Lee received another letter informing him that Annie had died. Through the weight of his grief and tears at the loss of his precious daughter, Robert E. Lee wrote to his wife, Mary, I cannot express the anguish I feel at the death of my sweet Annie. To know that I shall never see her again on earth, that her place in our circle, which I always hoped one day to enjoy, is forever vacant is agonizing in the extreme. But God, in this, as in all things, has mingled mercy with the blow in selecting that one best prepared to leave us. May you be able to join me in saying, His will be done. In July of 1863... After the Confederate Army's demoralizing defeat at Gettysburg and during their retreat from Pennsylvania, which appeared doubtful they would succeed, Robert E. Lee again showed where his heart was anchored. He corresponded with his wife. I trust that a merciful God, our only hope and refuge, will not desert us in this hour of need and will deliver us by His almighty hand that the whole world may recognize His power And all hearts be lifted up in adoration and praise of his unbounded loving kindness. We must, however, submit to his almighty will, whatever that may be. And finally, in April of 1865, after General Lee surrendered his army to the Union forces at Appomattox, he wrote this these solemn and joyful words to his longtime friend George E. Jones. We failed. We failed. But in the good providence of God, apparent failure often proves a blessing. The point of each of these snapshots from the life of Robert E. Lee is to simply show that the conviction. Comfort and assurance of Lee in all trying circumstances was always in what Lee described as the good providence of God. In fact, Robert E. Lee is just one example among a multitude of Christians in his generation who believed strongly in God's wise works of providence. For the vast majority of believers and even among some unbelievers who lived in 18th, 19th century America, there seemed to be this ever-constant awareness of divine providence, an awareness that was so common that the very word providence became another name for God, a synonym for God. But sadly, and even tragically, since those days in early America, the biblical truth and concept of God's providence has diminished significantly. One reason for this centers on the prevailing worldview of our ever-increasing secular culture, a culture which firmly believes that the world and everything in it operates apart from God by its own power in built-in laws. But when you combine this practical atheism of our American culture with the church's own departure from the biblical witness of God's sovereignty ruling the universe, it is little wonder that we live among a generation of Christians... ...who have no keen sense of God's providence. For most Christians, while they affirm that God created the universe... ...they do not affirm that God is upholding, sustaining, ordering, and ruling everything in the universe at all times. Instead, the theology we have today, which sits in the church pew, is what I call a peekaboo providence. This is the belief that affirms God's direct intervention in the world at certain points in history... But it denies his absolute and constant rule ordering all of history. God just peeks around the curtain of our lives, if you will, every once in a while to let us know that he's there and he's got our back if we need him. This is how many Christians in our day understand God's providence if they even have such a category in their mind. Well, with this in mind, I want us this evening to consider the great subject of what I am calling God's providence, the Christian's sanity. As I've just mentioned, the church today has largely departed from the truth of God's providence. In fact, when Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, was published in 1978, it was the first book written on providence in over 100 years Now, think about that. For nearly the first 80 years of the 20th century, the church saw not a single book on the doctrine of divine providence. But even with the publication of Bridges' book on providence, along with a few others that have been written since that time, there is still a vast lack of knowledge and affirmation in the church that God rules and governs all things great and small. The residue of a whole century of secular humanism and theological liberalism continues to be heard and felt from the pulpit to the pew in most churches across this country. Hence the heavy burden we should all feel who confess with joy the providence of God to set forth with clarity the truth of this great holy revelation in doctrine of the triune God. So, as we enter our study, I want us to consider God's providence from three different perspectives. First, we will define it. Second, we will attempt to see it as we look specifically at Romans chapter 8. And then finally, we will consider what it means to prize this great truth of God. To begin with, then, let's consider first defining the providence of God. When we talk about the providence of God, what is it exactly that we are referring to? How do we define and explain this biblical concept? Well, what is perhaps one of the best summary definitions of God's providence ever written in historical theology is what we read in the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. In the first paragraph of chapter 5 in the Second London, in the first paragraph of this exposition on providence, The Framers of Our Confession wrote the following. God, the Good Creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. God governs according to His infallible foreknowledge, And the free and unchanging counsel of his own will for the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, boundless goodness, and mercy. The basic principle truth of this definition is that God is completely in charge of his world. While the Lord may have rested on the seventh day from creating this world, He has not ceased from ruling, reigning, directing, and ordering all events in this world. As our confession states it, God governs all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least. There is nothing in all this world, nothing in all this universe that is outside of God's sustaining, governing, care, control, and direction. For instance, our confession states... That God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, that is, both man and beast. So for example, in Job twelve fourteen, God controls what man will build and achieve. If God tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts man in, none can open. In Daniel two twenty one, we're told that God raises up kings and removes them. In Proverbs 16:9 God establishes the steps for every plan we make. And because of this truth in Proverbs 16:9, we're admonished in James chapter 4:13 through 15 against making any plans about today or tomorrow without resigning the success of those plans to God's sovereign will. Listen to what James says. Come now you who say, But God's providence not only governs man in all his decisions and actions, God also controls the life of animals as well. This is the very thing our Lord Jesus referred to in Matthew 10, 29. Christ said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The falling of a sparrow. Think about this. The falling of a sparrow From its nest cannot happen apart from God's will. It was God's providential care and control of the animal kingdom which was used to humble Job and prove to him that while he acknowledged God's sovereign rule over his life, yet he had made wrong conclusions regarding the secret purposes of God's will. Such a revelation of God's vast sovereign power and government over the world provoked Job to confess in the end. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. However, God not only directs and rules all creatures, but our confession also states that He governs all things. This refers to inanimate objects like the heavens, trees, grass, the seas, rain, snow, ice, and all the seasons. So we're told in Daniel two twenty one that God changes the times and the seasons. In Job thirty seven six through twelve, we are told. For to the snow, God says, fall to the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Beloved, let us understand this. There is simply nothing, absolutely nothing, which takes place in this world, whether by man, beast, or the fall of rain and snow, that is not apart from God's all-wise, all-powerful control and direction. Providence, therefore, explains and describes God's ongoing activity of what He does in the world and what He has continued to do since he made the world at the very beginning. J.I. Packer put it this way. If creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves himself in all events And directs all things to their appointed end. God's hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. But as important as it is to understand that the providence of God refers to his absolute rule, ordering, sustaining, governing all creatures and things, there's one more important quality of God's providence that we must recognize under this first point of defining what it means. Going back to our confession, we're told that God governs all creatures and things by his most wise and holy providence. The point of these words is to assure us that there is never anything arbitrary, frivolous, or capricious in what God orders and carries out under his providence. He does not govern the universe according to polls or political expediency but by His most wise and holy counsel. Therefore, in everything which comes to pass in our lives, we can trust God that He has ordered the very best circumstances for us, tailor-made, as it were, in His secret counsel where there is no sin. The nature of divine providence is henceforth wise and holy. Applying this truth to suffering Consider this observation given by R.C. Sproul. How does God relate to suffering? As far as I am concerned, nothing is more comforting to the Christian who is suffering than the doctrine of divine providence. If suffering from illness, I can look at it as a result of a chance invasion of microorganisms in my body or I can say... That even microorganisms are ultimately upheld, directed, and disposed by the wise and holy providence of God. At this time, my vocation is to be a teacher and a pastor. I believe that God has called me to perform these tasks. But tomorrow, I may be so debilitated by an accident or disease that I'm no longer physically able to exercise this vocation. This does not mean that I would cease to have a vocation. I would have a different vocation. My vocation then would be to remain faithful to God even when He has called me to suffer. If I view my pain, suffering, loneliness, and grief as a cosmic accident, then the futility of life exacerbates my pain. However, if I see these painful things as coming to me from the hand of a good, holy, and kind providence who is working all things together for my good, I will have a reason to endure it. That will not erase my pain, but it will help me to endure without bitterness. So then, when we're talking about the providence of God, we are not talking about luck, chance, or fate. These terms are the ideas and expressions of pagans whose view of this world and all that happens in this world is explained with no regard for a personal sovereign Holy God. No, the truth of what goes on in this universe is that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who together created it all, continues to uphold, direct, dispose, and govern everything which they have created by their supreme wisdom and holiness for the display of their glory as the one true and living God. This is how. We define the providence of God. But from defining God's providence, let's now consider our second point of study, which is seeing God in providence. Seeing God in providence. From the outset of this point, it must be said that seeing God in providence is very difficult, if not near impossible, if we're straining to see God's providential hand exclusively from our own experience left to ourselves even as Christians we do not have the inward discernment which can accurately and precisely trace the workings and immediate purpose of what God is doing in any given moment of our lives as J.I. Packer noted God's hand of providence is invisible so then to title this particular point as seeing God in providence might appear as an error in understanding but while it is true that we cannot see God working in providence with our physical eyes nor by our mere mental understanding yet God has given us the eyes to see his works of providence by the revelation of his written word. In God's word we not only have the affirmation of divine providence as we've already seen in the first point but we're also given a glimpse to see the works of divine providence in our behalf. And to demonstrate this I want us to turn our attention to Romans chapter 8. The context of this chapter within the framework of Paul's letter to the church at Rome is to assure the believer in Christ of the security and certainty of final salvation. In other words, every Christian can be assured that since God has saved them, He will keep them saved to the very end. But to unpack this in Romans 8, Paul shows us how the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit is the triune God are each working together in actual history to bring all believers to eternal glory. Romans eight therefore gives us a divine vision to see the acts of divine providence securing, guarding, accomplishing, and consummating our redemption. So my burden under this point is to highlight in a few snapshots from Romans eight exactly how The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the triune God are working in providence to sustain, order, direct, and govern our final salvation. This treatment obviously will not be exhausted because of time. So for those of you who were scared to death that I was going to be going through all 39 verses of Romans, you can breathe a sigh of relief. However, I do pray that enough will be covered here under this point for us to see God to see God in the providence of our salvation. Now, to begin with, we must start with Romans eight twenty eight. This single statement expresses the overall works of God's providence in our salvation. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The purpose Paul is referring to here is God's Eternal decree, whereby from eternity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determined to save the people out of Adam's fallen race. But the outworking of this redemptive decree or purpose is what God has been doing in time and history. The works of providence, therefore, are nothing but the the historical expression of God's eternal decree. And in the context of Romans eight twenty eight, these providential works have to do with saving us. And keeping us saved. So then Paul says with absolute assurance that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose of salvation, all things work together for good. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are bringing every detail, every circumstance, every event, word, action, and thought of our lives to work together. For the good and benefit of our final salvation. Now think about this. No matter what happens in our life. No matter what it is. The triune God is tying it in. And bringing it together to form and fashion. What will be the final outcome of our salvation. Which Paul tells us in Romans 8 29. The final outcome is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ perfect conformity to the image of Christ is the good that is the good which Romans 8:28 promises God is working all things together for but what specifically is the father the son and the holy spirit doing in time and history to fulfill this eternal decree of salvation well in the first place we notice that God the father has fulfilled the saving decree By sending His Son into this world as a sin offering in the place of His sinful people. In Romans 8 and verse 3 we read, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Here is the supreme work of providence by God the Father to fulfill His eternal purpose to save us. Sin's penalty and power were both judged and sentenced by the Father in the death of Christ His Son for His people. However, the redeeming works of providence by God the Father did not cease with the sending and sacrificing of Christ in our behalf. In Romans chapter 8, 30-32, we see how the Father is responsible for calling us and justifying us in the experience of conversion... And will ultimately glorify us as well. We also see how the Father assures us. With the promise that since. He has done everything necessary. To secure our salvation. Then no adversary will ever rob us. Of our salvation. And our confidence. That the Father is for us. And nothing will undo his saving purpose. Is due to the fact. That he has given us his own son. Indeed look at how Paul. Look at how he composes this by the the inspiration of the Spirit in verse 32 of Romans 8. He says, he, speaking of the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The central point of this promise, and it is very amazing, is that if God the Father has already done the greatest thing of all for our salvation, then it is unthinkable that he should fail to continue his work in us until he has brought us to the final goal of ultimate perfection and glorification. This is how the Father is working all things together for our good, the good of being conformed to the image of Christ. He sent Christ to live and die in our place, and as the result of what Christ accomplished, the Father... Has called us and justified us in time and is continuing to answer our every need on the basis of what Christ did to ultimately glorify us in Christ. In the second place, we also see the works of providence for our redemption by God the Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the eternal saving decree to perfect us into his image first by coming into this world. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, God the Son came in the flesh as our substitute to live the life we never could, which is perfect obedience to the law, and die the death we all deserve, condemnation for our sins, in order that we would be put right with God. Secondly, not only did Christ live and die in our place, But he was also raised from the dead. How does the resurrection work for the good of our ultimate redemption? Well in this way. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead following his death on the cross. Proves to us that his atoning sacrifice was accepted and approved by the Father. Moreover the resurrection of Christ proclaims the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. What he did on the cross actually accomplished everything necessary to save us and then thirdly god the son is right now interceding for us the role of our lord jesus christ at this very moment in providentially bringing us to final salvation is that he the son of god is praying for us Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father representing every need we have to the Father and all those petitions are being answered in order to secure our eternal salvation. This is how God the Son is working all things together to fulfill the eternal decree of our redemption. Finally, Romans 8 also teaches us much about the works of providence carried out by God the Holy Spirit for our eternal redemption. Let me highlight here only two of those works. First, there is the discipline of mortification. The discipline of mortification. In Romans 8 13, we're told that it is only by the Spirit that we can put to death the deeds of the body. In the ongoing daily process of our sanctification, we face the ever present down drag of indwelling sin. The law of sin housed in our members works like a gravitational pull on our affections, thoughts, words, and deeds. But despite how strong and powerful the law of sin may be to us, we are not helpless victims to its temptations. We have God the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us to crush, to Sap to root out, to weaken, to subdue all known manifestations of indwelling sin. Working all things together for the good of our salvation, the Holy Spirit strengthens us to conquer those fleshly desires that wage a daily war against our soul. Secondly, there is also the discipline of prayer. The discipline of prayer. In Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27, we read, How the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The great point of these two verses within the context of Romans 8 is that as we suffer in this world with all the frustrations and agony of our fallen condition, the Holy Spirit literally comes alongside us and participates in our groaning by supporting, comforting, and encouraging us along the way. To be more specific, the Holy Spirit actually works in us to help us persevere in all our weaknesses as we press on in this pilgrimage to ultimate glory but it is in the matter of prayer where our great weakness is highlighted in this text. As God the Holy Spirit is ordering, directing, and sustaining us in our pathway to ultimate glory, he comes alongside us as we're about to crumble under the load of this agony in not knowing what is the right thing to pray in a given situation. And there... Paul tells us the Holy Spirit helps us. He consoles us and comes to shoulder the burden with us. And how he does this is what's so amazing and encouraging. On the one hand, he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. This means that he literally pleads our case with the Father, which translates our feeble attempts in praying over a situation to a petition that is according to the will of God. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit expresses groanings too deep for words. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. First, that the Holy Spirit groans with us as a matter of tender empathy as He helps us in our weakness. Second, these groanings are too deep for words since they register... The content of the Spirit's intercession to the Father in our behalf as beyond what mere human words can possibly articulate or define. Moreover, as the Holy Spirit is interceding in our hearts with groanings too deep for words, the Father searches our hearts, knowing what the Holy Spirit is praying and answers those prayers in perfect concert with His will. So in all these ways, we are able to see the triune God in providence. According to Romans chapter 8, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit united together to bring to pass in time and history the eternal purpose of salvation which they decreed before the foundation of the world. We see the Father sending and sacrificing His Son, to save us. And then calling and justifying us on the basis of what Christ accomplished which will render our ultimate glorification. Then we see the Son coming into the world to live and die for us, securing our salvation, being raised from the dead, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding in our behalf. And lastly, we see the Holy Spirit who lives in us, consoling, empowering, directing, and sanctifying our pathway to reach our eternal destination of perfect conformity to the image of Christ our Lord. What an incredible, astonishing, comforting, encouraging vision God has given us to see his works of providence fulfilling his eternal purpose to save us. So while we may not be able to see everything God is doing In our lives, we can at least be assured that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working all things together for the good of our redemption. God has at least given us the eyes to see how this work of providence is coming to pass. But now, having defined God's providence and attempted to see God in the works of providence, for our last point of study this evening, may we consider prizing God in providence. Prizing God in providence. This, this is, of course, our great point of application. Okay, This is where it gets real. This is where we should want the truth of God's providence to be embraced with joy in our hearts. Because it is one thing to say... We believe in the providence of God. But it is quite another thing to live our lives in the conscious reality of this glorious truth. Okay? It's the difference between having a belief and having a conviction. Whatever your belief is, that's what you control. That's what you control. And you know what? With a belief, you can take it or leave it. But not a conviction. A conviction is what controls you. A conviction controls you. And so we should want, as Christians, to be convicted, convinced in our hearts about the providence of God. So that in everything we face in life, everything our first and immediate default in our thinking about whatever it is is realizing God is bringing this to pass. This is happening by what he has ordained, by what he is directing and governing in my life. And, as we've just seen from Romans 8, he's also working this together for my life. Good. if you're convicted by the doctrine of God's providence then that is going to be how you respond because that conviction is controlling you it is controlling you so how do we prize then God in providence let me give you three suggestions first we need to preach the providence of God to ourselves every day We need to preach the providence of God to ourselves every day. Now, obviously I'm borrowing this language of a very well-known axiom which says preach the gospel to yourself every day. And while that should be something we really do, preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, I'm just as convinced that we need to reaffirm in prayer and praise the fact that, to quote from our Baptist Shorter Catechism, God's works of providence are the holy, wise, and powerful acts by which He preserves and governs all His creatures and all their actions. This means that passages like Proverbs 16 and verse 9 or Daniel 2.21 or Romans 8.28 should be put to memory and hidden in our hearts as a resource of refuge, of solace, sanity, and sanctification. For when we are treasuring God in his providence, then we will be free from the besetting sins of bitterness, anger, anxiety, worry, complaining, and bickering when those times and seasons come that try men's souls. This is why General Stonewall Jackson could respond. After the amputation of his arm due to having been mistakenly shot by his own men, Jackson said this, you find me severely wounded, but not unhappy or depressed. I believe that it has been done according to the will of God, and I acquiesce entirely in His holy will. It may seem strange, but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today, for I am sure that my Heavenly Father designs this affliction for my good. That was a man convicted by the providence of God. This is also why Joseph could look in the face of his hateful brothers with no desire for revenge, with no desire to get them back and say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Furthermore, the truth of God's good and holy providence is what gave the prophet Habakkuk the courage to say, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You see, beloved, when we preach the providence of God to ourselves daily, we will grow in a sanctified courage and hope which is anchored firmly in the Lord. We will see that there is no need that we should give way to self-pity or acidity when we suffer, but rather, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, we learn that we give thanks in all circumstances. We give thanks in all circumstances circumstances personally speaking it was this truth of God's wise and holy works of providence that gave me joy peace and comfort as I faced the inevitable expulsion from a local church 17 years ago in fact as I stood before that church on March 19 2006 and gave my farewell address I did so our great God in the works of his providence understand I had no anger toward the majority of that congregation that had done wicked and evil things to me and my family I didn't I had no anger and I even told them that which made them even more angry But I had no anger I was completely Controlled By the peace of the living God No anxiety No worry They were throwing me out Why? Because they said He believes in the doctrine of predestination And so they were firing me Hey Didn't shake me at all Didn't shake me at all A few days prior to this this particular Sunday morning, the Wednesday, the week before, that infamous business meeting that they called, it was really a lynch mob, a a four-and-a-half-hour meeting, a monthly business meeting in that church that only gathered maybe 10 to 15 people. That night, over 200 people were in the sanctuary. Over 200. Why? Because in that little small rural southern town, they were getting on the phone, making calls to people who had been members of that church for 20 some odd years, but who hadn't been there, who had not been there in years. Not only that, they even gathered people to vote me out who were not even members of the church. It was insanity. Absolute insanity. And yet, and yet, Glory be to God. I was able to stand before that lynch mob on that Wednesday night and even stand before them the following Sunday morning. And it was a packed house that Sunday morning because they were so anticipating for me to do what? To throw things at them? To cuss them out? Or to get down on my hands and knees and grovel and beg them to keep me? No. No, 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 no. No, here's a sample Of what I actually said that morning. This this is a portion of the actual manuscript of my farewell address. I said. While it is hard and even futile to trace God's hand in the events which unfold in our lives. Yet. What we do know. Is that God is in total control over every single circumstance. And therefore there is nothing which takes place that is outside of his sovereign purpose and plan. Furthermore, because God is holy and loving, all-powerful and all-wise, we can be assured that in everything we are going through, God can be trusted completely without any reservation. Now, I doubt very seriously. (laughs) In fact, I, I, I I know this for a fact that Many of those people who were there that morning did not understand anything I was saying. And they also didn't care. But for me, that is not what mattered. That's not what mattered. What mattered to me was the fact that by God's grace, through the means of preaching the truth of his providence to myself, for several years preceding this moment in time, I was brought to a place where I was able to rest and rejoice in what God had ordained, even though, even though so much of it was painful and it was afflicting. But nevertheless, I can honestly say to those people in essence, and I did say it because I had nothing to lose. You know... I'm leaving by sundown. Of course, what I didn't know is the Lord was going to have me there for another 10 years in that same county, in that same town, with those people on the other side of the road. But, but, I said to them, in essence, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And I said it with a smile, I said it with joy. And believe it or not, as tempting as it was, I didn't say it to go, nah, 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 and rub it in their face. That was tempting. That was very, very, very tempting. But the fruit of preaching the providence of God to myself every day was put to the test in 2006. And by the grace of God, I passed the test. Now, I'd like to tell you that I passed the test every time, but I don't. But this time, I did. This time, I did. And that was a critical moment, a very, very critical moment. Because what I had no idea was happening in that moment is that there were a few people in that congregation who were watching and listening to everything that I was saying and doing And it won their hearts to realize the truth of what I was saying was real. And they would end up leaving that church. And we would form a whole new church out of that. So, of course, now I do have to say, they also left the church because they were kicked out. (laughs) Because they did believe (laughs) the same thing. So, anyway, that's a footnote. Let's go to the next important way to prize God in His providence. Secondly, we must remember that all God's works of providence for us as His people are working together for the good of our salvation. Now, this great truth we've already considered for Romans 8.28. But I mention it here as a means of grace, a channel of grace to exercise our hearts with greater joy in God in what He's ordered and Is directing for every circumstance in our lives. As a child of God, we can say this, okay? Listen, as a child of God, we can say, This circumstance, whatever it is, whatever it is, this circumstance, God is working to conform me more into the image of Christ. You can say that as a child of God with absolute honesty and with assurance and with conviction because God's word gives you that assurance and gives you that promise. All things for your good. So this circumstance, whatever it is, this circumstance God is working to conform me more into the image of Christ. Finally, prizing the triune God in providence is learning to submit quietly to his providence. This last point is one that I actually took from the English Puritan Thomas Watson in his own exposition on the providence of God. Watson exhorted his readers the following. Follow along with me here. This is so good. Watson wrote, "...do not murmur at things that are ordered by divine wisdom. It is a sin as much to quarrel with God's providence as to deny His providence." Let us be content that God should rule the world, learn to acquiesce in His will, and submit to His providence. Does any affliction befall you? Remember, God sees it is that which is fit for you, or it would not come. Your clothes cannot be so fit for you as your crosses. God's providence may sometimes be secret, but it is always wise. Always wise. Now highlight here what Thomas Watson said in this, in this quote. Remember, as far as any affliction that befalls you, he says, remember, God sees it is that, that affliction, it is that, which is fit for you or it would not come. So this affliction you're going through, you're facing, Watson is saying, and he's right, he's biblically right. This affliction is fit for you. Otherwise, you would not be so afflicted. You would not be experiencing this if God had not ordained it and if God was not bringing it to pass providentially in your life. But the key of this final exhortation is that we learn, we learn to submit quietly to God's providence. This has to be learned. It is, it is a part of the process of sanctification. For instance, Joseph was not telling his brothers that that what they meant for evil, God meant for good when he was first thrown into the pit. That's not not when Joseph said that to his brothers. No, it would be 13 years later. Okay? 13 years later that those words would emerge. Joseph learned to submit quietly to God's providence for those 13 years he was a slave in Egypt. Paul the Apostle... Told the Philippian church in Philippians 4.11 that he had learned to be content in all circumstances. The context of this contentment was learning to live without the financial support of the Philippian church. How long did this take for Paul? It took 10 years. Ten years. Ten years of learning to submit quietly to God's providence. Withholding, mysteriously, for whatever reason, only God knows, but withholding the support of the Philippian church. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. Prizing God in His providence does not turn on like a light switch. It doesn't come automatic to us. Our quiet and joyful submission to His works of providence is learned It is learned through many tears. It is learned through many disappointments and setbacks and falling to the flesh. Sanctification is a lifelong process. And prizing the greatness of our God in His providence, as I've just mentioned, is a part of our sanctification. But praise be to God that even this, even this, He's working together. For our good. So may we be encouraged then. And trust God. That he will continue this work. Of grace in us all. Whereby we grow each day. To embrace with joy. What our triune God. Is in fact ordering. Directing disposing. And governing in every detail. Of our lives. For his glory. And for our ultimate good. In Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, how amazing in every sense of that word, how awe inspiring are the works of your divine, mysterious providence, governing, ordering, controlling every detail of our lives, Lord. But what comfort is this truth and revelation of your word to us? That in everything we face, Blessed Father, in every circumstance we go through that we encounter, you really are truly working all those things together to conform us more from one degree of glory to another to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that As assuredly as we do confess these things to be true according to your word, yet, Lord, we know and also confess that because of the weakness of our flesh, we can confess these things as a theory. We can confess these things in a mere cerebral way rather than confessing them from a heart that is controlled with the conviction of this truth. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you will so work in our hearts as your people by the Holy Spirit's power and grace that the truth of your divine providence will become more and more and more a controlling conviction whereby and wherein we will prize you more and more and more in the works of your providence in how you are bringing everything to pass as the first cause of all that comes into our lives. We pray, Lord, work in us the grace. Work in us that grace where we will rejoice in you, knowing that what we face today, even if it is terribly painful, terribly trying, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever the trial may be, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Sanctify us in such a way that we see and we recognize that your invisible hand is at work and working to your glory and to our good in all such things for the sake and the honor of Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen and amen.